for many of you who prayed for me and Wendy, we discovered the coast of Maine and liked it so much as we were going north. Uh, we decided as southerners we might not ever make it that far north again. We just went on up into Canada. And there were, it's about 30 to 35 degrees cooler there. Lobster is cheap, cheap, cheap. Uh, on the uh, dollar menu at the McDonald's there, they have lobster roll. Uh, so if you don't want to get it from the roadside or from the restaurant, you can go to McDonald's there and get it fast food through the drive-thru. So lobsters all over the place as our blueberries. But we feel really recreated even as we come back. Just a great time of rest. And we're coming back again uh, through the summer. We're going through 1 Peter. And we're looking at 1 Peter with the theme of being steadfast. Steadfast in trials. Steadfast when we face temptation. And not steadfast alone, but steadfast with the assurance and the manifestation through the power of the Holy Spirit and the community of believers around us that God is with us, that we don't do life alone. And so Peter is known as, First and Second Peter, is known as persecution literature. Another bit of persecution literature is Job. Peter understands trial and he understands suffering. And this morning we're going to look here in chapter 5 to see Peter's emphasis that he, that the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, in order to ensure that the flock is both led and served and protected, the chief shepherd raises up elders, shepherds, under-shepherds, who those shepherds follow the chief shepherd in their love and in their leading for his flock. But the sheep, of God's pasture, they follow the shepherds, the elders of the local church, even as they would follow the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. The problem comes in that we may have had an experience in church where leaders were abusive, where instead of being godly and following God, they acted more like they were God. Peter points it out as a negative to say, don't in verse 2 at the end, he said, do so not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, because elders, many times elders, shepherds are compensated. I'm an elder, Jonathan's an elder. There are many men who are elders because it's their their primary call, and they, they have a certain emphasis in ministry by allotment of time, they're compensated. But he says, don't do it just for the money. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. And some have experienced a domineering leadership. It's been so domineering that you think now ill of any in leadership over you. And you say, I will lead myself, but that's to set yourself up. Because Peter points out that whether we have come to acknowledge it or not, there is a lion that stalks us. And he is not a tame, cuddly kitty. 
This Cecil will eat you. You have an enemy. And he hates you if you are a Christian. If you're a member of Christ's flock, he would seek to even do harm to our chief shepherd by harming his flock. And if he is allowed to come into the flock or to pick us off on the outskirts because we're not coming under the lead and the protection of the elder and the shepherds that he has placed among us, he would do us harm. He would devour us. He would try to even hurt Christ in that way. Everything that you have, your families, your relationships, your children, your health, he's ruthless. You have an enemy. He's real. He's given a name. The devil, Diabolos, Lucifer, and all of his minion, the following angels. And here, he's compared to a lion that is not in the distance, but he's stalking us. He's roaming around, and he's looking for an opportunity. We need shepherds. And Christ did not leave us as sheep without physical, flesh and blood shepherds who would serve in his absence. He continues to rule and reign over us as our chief shepherd. He's never stopped in that task. But he does so now through the local elders. I want to say two things this morning. And the first thing is, is to elders among us or to men that would be nominated and would come to serve us in the future as elders and as shepherds, I want to encourage you to be mindful that you're following the chief shepherd. Now, you might think with this first point that if you're not in leadership or if you're not an officer in the church that you can just snooze on this part. No, it's very, very important. It's important for you to recognize the qualities or the the history, as it were, of elders. But it's also encouraging to you to know that they are serving you by God's design. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. And that helps us as we encounter that problem of, of past authoritarian abuse or being domineering to recognize that we can surrender the lead to the elders even as we surrender humbly the lead to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we want to look and see Peter's emphasis. He says younger. He says, uh, likewise, you who are younger. We don't know if he means this physically or if he means this emotionally or spiritually, but I think it's a play on words where he's talking about the elders among you and then he's talking about the younger among you. He's saying, as sheep who are not shepherds, willingly, humbly submit, follow the lead of the chief shepherds. Let me, before we get into this, each of these points, let me just remind you that this letter is written somewhere around A.D. 67. So, the year is 67. Now, in A.D. 64, the emperor Nero, who is, most of us, he's famous not only because of his immorality, but because he was fiddling or playing the harp while Rome burned. 
at his own instigation. He wanted to rebuild Rome. He wanted to rebuild Rome after his own likeness and in his own image. And so he set fire such that Rome burned for three days. And as they began to put it out, the citizenry began to put it out in certain places, he sent emissaries, arsonists, to go and relight the flames so that it would burn for a total of seven days, almost completely burning Rome down. Nero then faced the ire of the citizenry, and so what he did was he made Christians the scapegoats. And he pointed to the Christians as the ones who hated Rome and hated the the citizenry, and he made them to be treated and persecuted as outcasts, as if they were no longer members of the Roman citizenry because they didn't worship the same pagan gods. They didn't surrender and bow down and worship emperor as a god. So they faced the stadium. They faced true stalking lions, roaring lions. Nero is famous for having impaled many of them, having covered them with pitch or tar, and then lighting them on fire as human lanterns in his garden or in the arena. But in the arena, he would At times, as we see the list in Hebrews, he would have them sewn up into animal skins as if they were a human soccer ball and throw them out for the animals to harry them and and worry them until they were eventually devoured. The persecution was not as, as extreme as it would become in A.D. 67, some three years after the fire, but it was real. Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I would put in the top ten of Christian books. If you had a bookshelf that said, these are my Christian books. I'm, now, I would count Matthew Henry's commentaries as one book. Okay, So I know it's five volumes often enough. Don't get the abridged. Uh, but Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you can get it for free. You can get it off of, you can download it. Uh, on your iPad or your phone. In the very first chapter, in Fox's Book of Martyr, he makes this quote, The first persecution of the church took place in the year 67 under Nero, the sixth emperor of Rome. Peter is writing to a people who are there being steadfast in the faith is constantly threatened by people who hate them and who do not respect their faith. And Peter is writing to them and saying, hold the course, stay. Because in the absence of Christ, the first persecution, imagine being the first persecuted Christians, they thought they would be with the Lord by then. They thought the Lord would have returned. In other words, they were surprised that they were persecuted. Like too many of us. They had forgotten that Christ said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And they also would forget that it's a part of his plan. That God would take suffering and trial, fierce temptation, and he would use it. He doesn't waste a tear or a trial. He would use it to strengthen our faith, to restore our character, to make us to be the men and women that he would have us to be. 
And Peter comes and he says, Christ has not abandoned you. He is right here in your midst. And you can look at him to guard and protect the flock, to guard against the roaring lion by the elders that he's placed in your midst. The word here that he uses, and, and I, time doesn't permit me, but there's one, uh, we've got the, the, here in verse 1, you see the word so? Okay, so in English, when you start out a sentence, so, that points back to that that was previously written. So in response, what's previously been written has been suffering as a Christian. In response to that, because we're going to face suffering, he says, so I exhort the elders to get on it, to stick with it, to be shepherds. This idea is not a new one to Peter. It's not original with Peter. Uh, School has started back, so let me give you just a little bit of a history lesson. The history of eldership. First of all, elders were appointed by Moses. Moses was doing the job alone. He was extremely burdened. It says that all day, every day, 12, 16, who knows, 18 hours a day, people came to Moses and asked for his leadership. How do we serve the Lord in this? What do we do about this? They were, they were the world's first Christians, Jews, Hebrews. And so Moses was led by God in Numbers 11 to appoint elders who served alongside of him. Who served alongside of him. And these elders were like shepherds of individual flocks or tribes. In Deuteronomy 25 verse 7 we read that every city had a gate. And in every city gate you could find the elders there. The city elders were there. And you could go to them and they would help you and help adjudicate matters. And they would give you guidance and leadership, directives. The Sanhedrin to the New Testament now. We find in the Sanhedrin, often we'll find that Jesus Christ, He would speak to the elders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. And the elders are still there. It's God's idea. Paul's custom in Acts 14.23, wherever he planted a church, whenever he visited a group of Christians in his missionary journey, he always wanted to leave them with elders who had been raised up to shepherd that group of Christian. In Acts 15, verse 2, we find a presbytery is established. All right, now bear with me. I know that this is history. But you're Presbyterian. The word for elder here is presbyter. We're a Presbyterian church, meaning that we make much of elders. We make much of shepherds here. We make much of shepherds loving the flock like Christ loved the flock. Uh, church planter mandate in Titus 1.5 that every church, Paul comes to Titus and he says, look, you're doing a wonderful job as a solo pastor, but where are the elders? No pastor leads alone. A pastor is a, is a shepherd and he needs fellow shepherds. And so... To be a church, you, you have the requirement to have shepherds, elders, godly men with spirit's power. We find the credentials in 1 Timothy 3. What, what are we looking for? Well, we're looking, and they have a number of godly characteristics. 
But they're also, as we find in James, men who pray. And when they pray, things happen. God hears. God answers. Because they are humbly dependent, not on their own leadership skills, but they're dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We want those men to pray for us. We want those men's prayers. We want those men to lead us. They're compensated teachers and preachers. We find that in 1 Timothy 5. And then finally in Revelation 4.4, and this is just a, a thumbnail sketch of the elders being started as God's idea and continuing. We read that in eternity they continue. We say that you're an elder not only for life, but guess what? Men who are currently elders, you're not off the hook even in heaven. Revelation 4.4, we find that there are 24 elders We're greeted in this heavenly vision, 24 elders wearing golden crowns around the throne of God. The chief shepherd still ruling and leading his church with shepherds. That's the history, and we find here in the scripture that Peter doesn't come and beat these guys up and say, so get with it, get on it, let's do it. You got a job to do? Start shepherding the flock. Enough with your own vocations, your own hobbies. You need, this, need to take this serious. He doesn't guilt them into it at all. What he does is he comes, and in verse 4, he tells us, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He talks about being a shepherd is one of honor and reward. And don't, you know, the reward is not a reward of power. It's not a reward of riches. It's reward of honor, of serving another. Serving the king, serving Christ. And he says, if you'll heed the call and serve me as a shepherd, I will honor you in your service. I will honor you in the heavens. Now, there are crowns and there are rewards for, for all believers that are promised in the Scripture. And that's not the course of the study this morning. But he's saying, you serve not for earthly reward, not even the accolades of men, because I can assure you, if you're going to be a shepherd and an elder, you'll get far more criticisms. All leadership does. Whether you're a coach, or whether you're a CEO, or whether you're uh, in politics, the higher you go up in leadership, the more people will rail against you. So you can't serve for the accolades of men. You serve because of the honor and the call to serve God in His plan as the chief shepherd enlists men to serve Him as under-shepherds. i got to leave this, but before I do, I want to point out a word to you that we find in verse 2, and the word is ton clairon. Ton clairon. Now, go home and impress your friends that didn't go to church by saying, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about ton clairon the other day and just really wowed them. The only reason I bring it up is because the word means those allotted. If you have a New American Standard Bible this morning, you'll have those very words that appear. In the New English, in, the, in our English Standard uh, Bible here in verse 2, it's shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is among you. So two rivers is our flock. That's, it's, we're not called, if you're an elder, you're not called to shepherd people outside of your flock. You're sh- called to shepherd the people that are among you. 
But the people that are among us, two rivers, is our lot. The word clairon, ton clairon, the word comes from dice. We see it appearing in Matthew 27 where the soldiers rolled the bones at the foot of the cross to discover who would win, the winnings being the cloak or the robe of Christ. We see it also in Acts 1 when to replace the the betrayer Judas, the disciples had gone now uh, because of Judas's uh, suicide. They were down to 11. There must be 12. So it said they cast the tongue clear on. They cast the lot. And it fell that Matthias would be the 12th disciple to replace Judas. We find that the same terminology, though in Hebrew, not Greek, we find the same terminology shows up in the Old Testament where it tells us in Deuteronomy 9, verse 29, that Israel is the allotment. Israel are the winnings, okay? They are the winnings. They are the allotment. They are the inheritance. They are the prize. They are the heritage. They are the jewel that befalls God. When God says, let me show you my inheritance. Let me show you my prize. What you see is his people. And now here, the ton clairon, the allotment, the winnings, the inheritance, the riches of elders, Peter says, is the flock. Far from a responsibility that is burdensome. He says, this is your prize. Elders, the prize in your life, one of the things that God honors you with is the care and the responsibility for the leading, the feeding, the serving, and the protecting of His people. He entrusts His inheritance and shares it with you. That gives me chills. How I have failed so many times. How I have griped and whined as an elder about you, two rivers, so many times. Not specifically. Not you specifically. Just in general. Just a bad day, right? But how if I change the way that I see two rivers as an elder and as a shepherd, and I don't just see bleeding sheep that are getting in trouble again, which is not you, but, but I see Christ in you. I see you as God's people, as God's riches, as God's sons and daughters. And I begin to approach it then, not so much as a burden, but as a great, great honor. Being an elder is an honor. And the honor, the way, one of the ways that he crowns us and honors us, is with you, two rivers. It's a privilege to serve you. It's a beauty. It's a beautiful thing. And that's God's design. Well, what about the flock? What is the, what is the flock? look like as far as its responsibilities well here peter comes in verse five and he shifts and he says likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another now if we can pull up the side i want to make this very very practical what does it mean to humbly come under the hand of the lord Well, the word there that he uses for humbling is the word for a servant's 
apron. So I like to cook in my house. Uh, I love to cook. I do the cooking. Uh, I enjoy it. Wendy and I, our division of labor is I cook and she cleans. But guess who gets the raw end of the deal every time? Because I am a messy cook. And it never, it never fails. I mean, and I'll use just about every pot. You know, why, why let a good, clean pot go to waste, right? And then grease, you know, I don't really know how to use those grease screens. I kind of use them after the fact. So everything's just greases popping and all that kind of stuff. And I'll never get the sequence down. You know, I'll be like, all right, it's almost ready. And okay, now we need to bake the rolls. Well, well, you should have put that in 15 minutes ago. What are you doing? That takes 20 minutes to bake these rolls. You know, ah, well, we'll just wait. And so some will be cold and some be hot, not necessarily right. But almost without fail, I'll start and I'll have a, you know, I'll be coming in uh, after being in the office or being out, and I'll have maybe a nice shirt on like this, and I'll start cooking, and I'm frying some stuff, got some pork chops breaded and ready to go. Wendy will come in from work. She'll say, oh, whoa, 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 you're going to ruin it. Get the apron on because that will protect you from the stains. That will protect you from the dirt. It was a towel Jesus humbly wrapped around his waist as he bent down to deal with the toe jam of his disciples. Peter comes along and he says this, and it's, it's this visual that he leaves them with. He says, humble, humble yourself under the hand of the Lord. Have you noticed, and I, often enough, I will tie, I, I can tie my apron behind me, but I'll just kind of cinch it a little bit, and then I'll let Wendy tie it. It's as if he's saying, let the Lord, humble yourself under his hand, let the Lord's hands tie that apron around you. That apron of humility. That in your dealings with one another, that apron of humility, allowing you to come under the hand of the Lord, making less of yourself and more of another. That's humility. Less of myself and more of another person. I can do that I can do that with you if I'm wearing a humble garment. I can begin with this garment, as it were, by wearing Christ who made himself nothing except make himself sin on my behalf that I might experience sonship. I might might be raised not simply to the status of a servant but to the status of a son. And not because I did anything but because of his great love that he's put upon me. I'm so humbled by that that I can now walk, I can walk among you with humility, I can follow others, I can serve others with humility. I want to be very, very practical because I think Peter's very, very practical here. And I've got a couple of things that I want you to consider as we work toward the end. First of all, Peter says, humble yourself. What does that mean? Notice that the, the, the energy is not on God humbling you through trial, God humbling you through circumstances. The initiative is to come from us. What would it look like tomorrow morning to humble yourself before the Lord? I think one of the three greatest sins, I think there's there's three great sins that our nation commits. But one of them, I think is that we think that we're smarter than God. 
And many times we'll give him the Sunday or Sabbath in worship, but we make so many decisions independent of God. We make decisions as if we're orphans without a father or we're sheep without a shepherd. And that can set us up with a feeling of superiority or arrogance. What does it look like to humble yourself? I know with me, because I'm a, a news junkie, I like, I like the news. Before I read the newspaper, okay, so I cheat a little bit. So while the coffee's finishing, the, pot, the coffee pot is finishing brewing, I scan the front page of the news, okay? I know that sounds silly, but this is what humbling myself before the Lord looks like. But before I have my first cup of coffee, I open God's Word and I say, Father, you're the Father and I'm a small child and I'm not wise. You lead me. And wherever you lead me, please, Holy Spirit, give me the courage and the faith to follow. And I read. And I pray. And then after that, I go to the news to inform myself. It may look different for you. But what does it mean for you take the initiative to humble yourself? That's what Peter is saying. That's what he's saying as a sheep in the flock that's going to keep you steadfast when you humble yourself. Because God adores that. He opposes the proud and the superior. But he is drawn, he is drawn like a moth to the flame, to the broken, to the hungry, to the needy. Do you see that when Jesus walks through the pages of the Gospels? He is drawn. I mean, people, Lord, have mercy on me. He's right there. Weak children, disciples saying, get out of here, get out of here. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is who I've come from. Except you become like a little child. I'm not going to lead you. Humble yourself. All right, number two, cast away anxiety. Anxiety here, the word means to divide. And have you ever found that? When you're very, very anxious and very, very worried, it divides you. You know, you're, you've got that on your mind. And it is influencing all of your other thinking. And so he's saying, cast away that type of anxiety. And another unique thing about the word here is that it's not plural anxieties, worries, distractions. It's singular. It's like a state of mind that he's talking about. Paul will say in his letter to the Corinthian church that on top of all the things that he's faced, he has the concerns of the saints. And that's the same word for anxieties. So having some anxiety is not bad. It's not sinful. But this is different. It's a constant state of mind. Once again, an orphan state or a sheep without a shepherd. A, a Christian without community. I'm facing life alone. And he's saying, cast that aside. And when he uses the word cast, you're getting all these words these days because they're just so rich. It's the word that he uses back in Luke 19 as Christ is preparing. I think it's verse 25. Maybe it's verse 35. But in Luke 19, Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem where he is going to be seized, falsely tried, and then crucified. It's, the, it's Palm Sunday, and he's or Palm weekend, so he's coming in and he says, go get a donkey. And so they go get a donkey and they cast a cloak onto the donkey and Jesus sits on it. Now, not to be crass, but what does it look like for you 
to lay your anxiety, your state of mind, your attitude. What does it look like to lay that before Jesus and let him sit on it instead of you sitting on it? Not to be crass, but give it to Jesus. Your shoulders are not that big. Your heart's not that strong. You won't be able to be steadfast, not alone, and you're not made to. It's not God's design. He says, give them to the chief shepherd again. Give them to to Jesus. Thirdly, stay sober, stay awake. Remember who's writing this? This is Peter. He was one of the disciples that went to sleep in the garden. Why did they go to sleep? They didn't realize that the enemy was lurking in the dark. While we were driving up coastal Maine, coastal Maine is absolutely beautiful. And for a southerner like me, born and bred in South Carolina, the geography and the terrain was I found a very difficult time putting my head around it because they have beaches there, but they're huge, rocky, craggy, cliff beaches. And they said, oh, here's a great beach to go and sun on. And they're big rocks all over the place. I mean, it's black sand, and and you, you can be driving, and you're going through these mountains, and then there's the ocean. It was crazy. And you'd be going through these places, and there'd be all these blueberry fields, and then there was a sheep farm. And we were coming past one of the sheep farms, and as we were looking, they there wasn't a fence. They had led them out of the fence, and there's all this natural forest and everything, and they led them into this open pasture. And I told Wendy as I went by, and I was driving, I said, look around because we didn't see a shepherd. I said, but there's got to be a shepherd because it's an anomaly it's, a, it's an oxymoron to see an exposed flock without a shepherd, without somebody. We didn't see him initially, and then she said, I see him. I see him in the edge of the woods. There's a man sitting down. There's always a shepherd watching over the flock. And God has given us physical, in the flesh, elders here, but they're to watch us even as Jesus watches us. And Jesus continues to see us. Would that we know and care for our own souls, recognizing that we have an enemy like they have an enemy. We won't stay sober and we won't stay awake unless we realize we're hunted. We're a hunted people. But we're not without resource and we're not without protection. But if we feel like we minimize it, We'll just get sleepy. There's no need to be cautious. There's no need to be prayerful. There's no need to be wake. You know, we're safe. No, we are in, we're not home yet. Fourthly, resist the roars. Uh, verse 8, he says, your adversary, the devil. The word devil means accuser of the brother. The very, I mean, this is a spiritual being. Not as strong as Jesus, not Jesus' co-equal in evil. Like you've got on one side, I've heard this, very, it's heretical, but I've heard it put this way. On one side you have Jesus all in white, and then on the other side you've got his equal. On the other side of the, the wrestling mat, uh, you've got the devil and he's all in red. And they're just kind of fighting over your soul. Who's going to win? And Who's going to be, they sing, the champion? It's not like that at all. Jesus... Jesus is is God who took 
humanity in the flesh. The devil is a fallen angel. The devil is not as strong as Jesus. But now you ready? He's stronger than you. He's stronger than you. And one of the ways that he will come to us is there's, he will accuse you and he uses his voice many times. As it says here, the devil is a roaring lion. And I think there's two things that he roars, he roars at us that can really cause us not to be steadfast in our faith and our fellowship and our walk with Jesus. Number one, he tells you what a loser you are. All right, what else you got? Well, Phil, you're a sinner. All right, what else you got? You're a big fat sinner. All right, now that's getting below the belt. I don't like that. I don't like weight jokes. All right, what else you got? Burke Parsons says, The devil knows your name, but he calls you out by your sin. God knows your sin, but he calls you by name. I love that. God didn't list my sins. He just calls me son. He calls me child. But the devil roars at my sins. You're doing it again. You think you're a Christian and you're setting yourself up as an elder? Oh, how unqualified you are if they only knew. Thank you very much, but God knows. And I stand here by grace and His grace alone. If I've got to stand up here by worth, you better shout me down because I'm, I'm, I can't stand here by any worth, by any quality other than I am here by His grace. What is the second thing that He roars? I believe He roars comfort. You know, I learned this from the temptation of Christ and, the, and as Christ starts, his, his, He's getting ready to go, come public. For 30 years, at 30 years of age, He had been off the devil's radar screen and now He's in the wilderness for 40 days and the devil sees Him and goes after Him with a vengeance. And do you know what He says and He roars at Him with each of those temptations? Take it easy. Take it easy. Comfort. Rest. Hey, why be hungry? Make you some bread out of these rocks. Why die and all that icky, bloody, crucifix stuff in the future? You don't have to do that. Just, I'll, I'll give you all the worship you want. He would even do that through Peter, the author of this letter, in the Passion, when Peter would say, hey, listen, you know, you don't have to go down there. I'm not going to let anybody take you. He said, get behind me, Satan. Stop your voice. Stop the roaring for me to take the comfort way out. Oh, these people are, are in tough times. And Peter's saying, don't let him devour you. And devouring basically means you lose the faith. You become food. You become not, not necessarily physical, but you just become, maybe you become a cultural Christian. But you don't become a steadfast Christian. Maybe you just deny the faith altogether. Peter knew something about that. Peter would finally say here, experience suffering in community. And I won't say anything about this other than verse 9. He says, you're, 
remember that what, just know this for sure, that the kinds of suffering that you're experiencing, your brotherhood throughout the world is suffering too. They face it too. There is not one suffering that you're facing or trial that you're facing that others are not also suffering. It may not be the same, but you're not alone. God's not picking on you. You're not alone. So there must be some purpose in this. And I see a couple of purposes. Steve Brown used to say on his radio broadcast, he used to say, and he got into trouble with it, but there may be something to it. He said he believes that when an unbeliever gets cancer and goes into what used to be called the cancer ward, he believes a believer gets cancer and goes in that same cancer ward. Now, it was a generalization, but what he wanted to do was say, look, when people in this life face suffering, many times God will permit Christians to face a similar suffering so that the unbeliever, the one that does not have a shepherd, might see what our source of comfort and strength and faith is. I believe that I've got a couple of scars on my hand, but I believe that the shape of my hand is if my hand were to reflect or be a metaphor for the suffering and the trials that I faced. I believe that because of some of the suffering that I face, my hand fits other hands that are going through similar trials better than yours. But your hand and your suffering is made and is a match for someone else. So experience your suffering in community. Realize that you need others, but also they need you. And your suffering is not without purpose or point. And then he uses the word in verse 10. He says that after all of this, after all of this, God, the God of all grace, He's going to take your suffering and He's going to use it to Himself, His hand, His design, His heart. He Himself, Christ, is going to use it to restore you. And the word to restore is the same word that is used to heal a bone, to mend a fracture, to knit it back together, or to to mend a net. And in some mysterious way that often escapes us, God takes every suffering, and it's not without purpose. He takes every every suffering, every trial that you face, and He uses it to mold you and to make you to be the son and the daughter of beauty and glory that He desires you to be. Suffering has purpose in the hand of God. And He is not, as your Father, allowing you to suffer without purpose. He says here, I'll use it to mend you. I'll use it to make you strong. I'll use it to make you to be steadfast and even to shine as sons and daughters in the trials that you face. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here.
But I pray that if we can just come away with but a singular thought, and that is that we are the sheep of your pasture. We are the flock under your hand. We do not face life alone. And far from looking to us to suffer alone or face trial alone, you look to us and you say that we are your inheritance. We are your children. We are your prized sheep. So I ask that you would raise up elders and shepherds among us and they would love us and they would lead us like you. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen the hearts of all of us as sheep. That we would be mindful that we have an enemy, but we also have a chief shepherd. So Father, strengthen us, for this is good news, that we are not alone, but we are yours, and that forever through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.